Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Daniel Prisbilko. The message that I have today I've entitled Divine DNA. And uh, I think it's fair to say that we can start right in the beginning with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. The Bible is just out there, isn't it? It just has this bold assertion right up front. In the beginning, God. It cannot be confused with any other idea that has come after it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do you read it? How do you understand that? Do you believe it? Today, as we live in a world that has been so overly influenced for well over a century of of teaching with the writings and thinking of Charles Darwin with the origin of species, um, you know, for for the most part, uh, what he has written has been proved to be erroneous. evolutionists have themselves gone through and said, you know, this is more than 90% incorrect on what we know today. Uh, And so that, you know, begs the question, the other 10%. But uh, we find ourselves surrounded by and influenced by generations of thought that is at clear odds with the opening lines that we just read in the scripture and thereby at odds with the faith in God. Whether inside or outside of a church, People have formed views and opinions um, on what they think is reality and oftentimes on God, on the creator God. um, And often he's not even in the picture. So Genesis 1.1, sorry, Genesis 1 identifies the daily cycle as we know it. We read there in verse 5, so the evening and the morning was the first day and then a little bit down in verse 8 so the evening and the morning was the second day and so on until we get right down to the end of chapter 1 to verse 31 we see the creation of mankind and so the evening and the morning were the sixth day it reads and then we have the seventh day that uh, God blesses and sanctifies it and all is good it says it's very good God is present there with his creation Day seven is the crowning element of the creation week. It's the beginning of an enduring connection with God and humankind. And that was the way that it was meant to be into eternity. It was meant to last. Perhaps that is why there is no mention of so the evening and the morning was the seventh day. It's not there. Because it was meant to last into eternity. See, that was, this was the beginning of something, that, a relationship that was meant to be perpetual. But as we know from Genesis chapter 3, the rebellion put an end to that, or sin as we know it. So today is creation Sabbath, and I'd like to draw our attention to what Scripture says about creation We'll also touch a little bit on what science has to say 
And uh, as uh, we're finding that as time goes on, as I mentioned earlier, the more and more that scientists find out, there's more and more evidence, I think, that is mounting for a case for creation. The psalmist declares in uh, Psalm 19, uh, verses 1 to 3, as uh, Richard read earlier, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. According to scripture, all we need to do is look up. The heavens themselves declare the glory of God without even words. Without words, their voice can be heard declaring the marvelous creative power of God. The Apostle Paul writes in uh, Romans 1 verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. One of the keys for evidence I believe, of a creator God is actually found in the seven-day week. And what we understand to be the seventh-day Sabbath according to the scriptures. You know, when we look at um, galactic evidence, you could say, uh, for the Sabbath, we actually don't find it there. Uh, We find, um, you know, the time period that we get for a day, right? What is a day? How do we get the day? 24 hours. But what is it? It's the rotation of the earth on its axis, correct? One full rotation is a day. What is a month? Is that orbit of the moon, right? Orbit of the moon around the earth. Then we have one year. What is the year? When we look up into the skies, what is it? One year is an orbit of the earth around the sun. Correct. But what about the week? Where does the week come from? It's not up there. There's no astronomical evidence for a seven-day week. And yet the whole world marches to the drum of a seven-day week. Isn't that true? It's like it's God's DNA. That's why I've called it divine DNA. You know, there have been times in the past where different experiments have been made uh, with different societies I guess to do away with God to do it our own way in the ancient Near East the Babylonians practiced a five-day week and we know from the scriptures that Babylon basically stands up against God doesn't they they they, they rebel from God that's what Babylon stands for Um, it's a confusion right uh In contrast to that, the Hebrews practice the biblical seven-day week with a rest on the Sabbath, and today the whole world has adopted the seven-day week. Why didn't they go with the Babylonian one, the five-day week? Um, If uh, you go back in history to the French time of the French Revolution, etc., we see that the French had a period of time where they abandoned God, didn't they? Even in their, in their parliament, they voted. They, they say, basically, there is no God. And so 
as they brought about their metric way of thinking, and I guess we got the metric system here now as a result of that, they brought in a 10-day week. Did you know that? They brought in a 10-day week thinking, you know, that well, everything should be metric. And um, that wasn't working so well. So they thought, well, let's go to a five-day week. Well, that didn't work out so well either. And as the productivity went down, as uh, immorality increased, as their uh, uh, mental health was going south, they thought, let's just go back to a seven-day week. The Russians did it as well. Uh, as they introduced communism and uh, atheism, they went to a five-day week. So they thought they would be more clever because they, they wanted to be productive. So they thought each day of these five days, there will be people working in the factories or working in the fields, whatever. They just said, basically, 20% of the workforce will be off at any one time. Okay, it's not like everybody gets the same day off. It's uh, we, we work and then, you know, you get... One in five gets this day off, and then the next one in five gets the next day off. They found that their productivity fell. They also went back to the seven-day week. More recently, in the field of uh, chronobiology, we find evidence for a seven-day cycle. I found this scientific journal in uh, Chronobiology International. It was a scientific paper published in 2016 entitled Seven-Day Human Biological Rhythms, An Expedition in Search of Their Origin, Synchronization, Functional Advantage, Adaptive Value, and Clinical Relevance. Now, <laughs> as I looked through it, I thought, man, I need to go back to my uh, engineering days and my statistics to, have, to understand some of all this stuff that they were talking about. But, uh, you know, I basically scanned through this paper and there's some amazing stuff that these guys are reporting here. Uh, for example, um, there are examples of phenomena of seven-day cycles in, across various species, plants, birds, mammals, insects, uh, and human beings. There are, for instance, in the human being, there are oscillations, weekly oscillations in our blood pressure, seven-day cyclic patterns that regard, are relating to inflammation, and, uh, and healing, and, uh, and, and sometimes there's a half period there as well, and so uh, doctors know that after three and a half days, for instance, after an operation, they can tell uh, whether you know, you're going up or you're going down because there's like this seven-day cycle of healing. Uh, weekly cycles in regards to blood clotting mechanisms, seven-day cycles in newborn babies regarding blood pressure, heart rate, and weight. And that's, so, so that's why um, you know, the, the doctors that look after newborns, etc., they don't bother weighing babies every day. They don't bother checking their vital signs and all that every day uh, because they find that, the, that it has a seven-day period. Seven-day cycles in, our, in regards to our immune system response. Then there are some bizarre things that they found, you know. The water uptake of a certain bean seed is based on a seven-day cycle. Uh, beetle development, seven-day cycle. Uh, seaweed, uh, algal growth, seven-day cycle. Do you find that interesting? <laughs> the authors basically conclude that... There are no cosmic or, and I'm reading here now, there are no cosmic or earthborn signals of sufficient strength 
to give rise to the numerous life forms that exhibit seven-day rhythms in varying degrees of complexity. I'll read that again, eh? <laughs> there are no cosmic out there or earth-born signals of sufficient strength to give rise to the numerous life forms, plant matter, okay, humans, animals, etc., that exhibit uh, numerous life forms that exhibit seven-day rhythms in varying degrees of complexity. From the start of creation, God, ha I believe, has programmed us or wired us for the Sabbath. It is a gift that he's given to us, that he has given to all humanity even before sin came into the picture. Perhaps that's why the Sabbath has been attacked so much throughout history. It stands as God's fingerprint, if you like, his DNA over all of creation. I remember when I was at university in the late 80s, um, there was a group of four of us that would come together, you know, to nut out certain, you know, more challenging math problems that we had. We had to do math subjects right through to our third year at university and, uh, and also some engineering problems that we had to nut out. And uh, oftentimes we'd sit around together and, and as you do when you're, you know, 19 years old or whatever, 20 years old, uh, we would have, first of all, we would you know, have to have the compulsory game of euchre or 500 or something like that first before we did our study. So we would sit down and play cards for a little while and then as we chatted, we talked about upcoming exams, etc. And someone would say, you know, why don't we meet next time on, on Saturday? And uh, instead of meeting as we were probably on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever, then I told them that I don't do any study on Saturday. It's my Sabbath. And, and they just didn't understand. They didn't get it. You know, it's particularly when it came around to uh, the study period where we'd take, take time off to study for exams and everybody was frantically studying. I would have a 24-hour period where I did no study and I still managed to get the same marks as they did. How's that work? You know, Mark 2, verse 27, says that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You'll notice here there's a chiasm, uh, as we often refer to it in the Hebrew thought, in Hebrew writings, there's sometimes a multi-level sort of chiasm, you know, uh, where a certain paragraph or a chapter in the Bible starts off with a thought and then it'll finish off with the same thought. And then it'll have another thought in verse 2. And then the second to last verse, for instance, I'm just simplifying it here now, has the same sort of thought. And it kind of builds up, builds up, builds up, if you like, to the middle of the chapter or the middle of the book even. And that's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle of the whole chiasm. And then it kind of goes down the other side in reverse order. And so here we have this, this tiny little chiasm, the Sabbath. It's made for who? For man. Not man for the Sabbath. So it was a gift. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing to mankind. Sabbath is something that comes around to us, whether we acknowledge it or not. Every week, like clockwork, since creation, it just rolls around. God has wired us for the Sabbath. Now, you know, I've met many people that say to me, well, why not Friday? You met people like that? Why not take the Friday? Or 
Why not take the Sunday? Or why not take any of the seven days? You know, why this particular day? Why not any of the seven days? Or as the evangelicals might say, why not every day? <laughs> uh, you know, to the human mind, it makes no sense. To the human mind. But this is where faith comes in, doesn't it? This is where faith comes in. It's something that God asks us to take note of and to honour. It takes faith, my friends, to follow through on things that don't always make rational sense to us as humans. Isn't that true? That's where faith comes in. And we see that in various instances in the Bible. Faith is being, what, certain of what we do not see. And if we look at the Garden of Eden, there was that Edenic fruit. Uh, it didn't make rational sense to Eve, you know. The, the, the fruit looked good to the eyes. Perhaps it tasted good as well. And uh, faith required that she push back the deceptions of the serpent, but human reasoning triumphed over God's directive. And even today, you know, you meet people that say, uh, say, surely God wouldn't have, you know, just said, you know, surely all of this mess in the world hasn't come about just because of the one fruit. Like, well, what's, what's wrong with just eating one fruit? It's just not rational. True? Have you met people like that? But it's so simple. How, how easy it is that somebody says, you know, don't eat that. You know, mum says... Don't touch those biscuits. Don't touch that cake. It's for later on. How hard is it to, to obey? God just says, don't eat of this one tree. That's it. It's got serious consequences. But Eve used her rational mind, right? She didn't use faith. We see other instances in the Bible where, you know, even today, you know, I've preached about this. I've preached about, you know, Abraham going to sacrifice his son. And even though it makes somewhat sense now in hindsight, because, you know, we, we use it as a, you know, this is pointing towards the Messiah. This is what God would do. God would sacrifice his own son. It makes sense to us. But still, in a rational human mind, is like, you know, why would God do that? Why would God ask somebody to sacrifice their own child, particularly like, you know, this was the long-awaited son that they couldn't have because they were too old and, and so on and so forth. And then finally they get the son and then God says, what, sacrifice him? Humanly speaking, it makes no sense. But that's why Abraham is called the father of faith. He's listed there in that faith chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11. Makes no sense to us, but he followed through by faith. And clearly, God didn't follow through. <laughs> he provided a ram rather than Abraham sacrificing his son. It took faith to step into the Jordan, right? You remember as they were crossing over into the promised land, the, the river was flowing and they were carrying the ark. It took faith for those, those priests to step into the water to part the water. Made no rational sense to them, but they did it. And God followed through. It made no rational sense to walk around Jericho, you know, once every day. And then on the seventh day, walk around seven times. 
and blow the trumpet. But that's what God asked them to do. And the walls fell down. <laughs> it made no rational sense to Naaman, who had leprosy, to go and dip himself seven times in the dirty waters of the Jordan when his rivers up in Syria were so much cleaner coming down from the mountains and the snow and so forth. Like, what, this filthy river here in Jordan? But he followed through. And by faith, God healed him. Even Jesus asked when he was on the verge of Calvary. He asked, Father, if there is some other way. If there is some other way. But guess what? There was no other way. And it may, you know, even Jesus must have had all of these thoughts. But he followed through by faith as a substitutionary sacrifice. So, friends... The greatest test of obedience is not when you understand, but when you don't fully understand to the end, but you do it anyway. Does that make sense? The greatest test of obedience is not when you understand everything to the nth degree, but when you don't fully understand to the end, but you do it anyway because God has asked us to do so. You know, the early... Seventh-day Adventist pioneers, they gave up smoking because it was revealed to them through inspiration that it was a slow poison. Back then, the doctors were prescribing smoking if you had a lung condition. You know, you present yourself to the doctor, he says, go get yourself some ciggies and, you know, that'll help you. <laughs> but today, science has caught up to that inspiration and today it's the government that helps people to stop smoking, not the Seventh-day Adventist church. Isn't that true? I remember as a kid, you know, we used to run these five-day stop smoking plan thing for, for the community. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because science has caught up. Okay? And there are obviously other things that we could add to the list that science is still catching up on. And there are some positive movements in these areas, but, you know, they've still got a way to go. You know, things like alcohol, etc., caffeine and other, you know, things that we might be putting in our body. Given enough time, I believe science will catch up. But hey, why not practice by faith rather than wait on the science? When we look at the creation and the Seventh-day Adventist doctrines, they all have Jesus as the centre as we talked about in our Sabbath school lesson today, but indeed, when you look closer, they all also have creation as a foundational piece as well, in all of them. Did you know that? Uh, many have said that the name that we have, Seventh-day Adventist, is a sermon in itself, and it can be. But, uh, you know, when we break it up, just the, the, the name there, Seventh-day, uh, is clearly, it's taken from the weekly cycle of, from creation. The Sabbath worship that we have, clearly this has origins in the creation week that, that was there before sin. When we look at lifestyle that we advocate as Seventh-day Adventists, you know, our advocacy of, of a healthy lifestyle harks back to the way that God originally intended it, right back in the Garden of Eden at the time of creation, without the consumption of animals, etc., you know, and it's a much healthier lifestyle that is enjoyed by many people today. 
here in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, you know, you've got places popping up all the time that have, you know, vegan this, vegan that, right? And uh, today it's being recognised not only by science, but people of no faith. But it goes back to creation. Uh, what we understand about life and death. In order to understand death, we need to understand what life is. So our understanding of these things also goes back to creation and how God created from the dust and then breathed. Okay, The breath is the spirit. And then man became a living soul. Right. So your soul is not some, some sort of separate entity that can be ripped out of your body. And, uh, and so you know, God said that when you eat of this tree, you will die. But most people today, of most faiths, believe that when you die, you don't really die. You keep going on living in some sort of way. They have accepted that lie that was told by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So can you see how our doctrines that we have, yes, they have Jesus at the center, but they also go back to a foundational concept that we get from creation. What about the, uh, the second part of the name, the Adventist part? Uh, Adventist, Advent, the word Advent affirms that, you know, we are a people that are awaiting the second coming of Jesus. And uh, the return of Christ really affirms that he is the creator as well. When we look at our doctrine regarding the judgment, it includes obviously cleansing. You know, we, we understand that we're living in the prophetic time uh, the antitypical day, if you like, of atonement shortly before the second coming of Jesus, which will be, it is a time of judgment. It is a time of cleansing. And so when Jesus returns and ultimately establishes his kingdom, at the end of the millennium, there will also be a cleansing of the earth, a purging of sin, right? And, and then there will be a recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. So in order to believe that Christ can recreate, we must first believe that he can create. Does that make sense? Yeah. Then when we look at the resurrection, the resurrection from death is, is a belief that is firmly grounded in the belief that the, our Lord is the originator of life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so at the resurrection, we believe that we are changed. We have new bodies that are not subject to death, like was originally intended by God where? At creation. At creation. So we could keep going with, you know, there are, I think, 28 fundamental doctrines, but I think we'll stop there, right? Um, you see, in effect, through our doctrines, we are affirming that we believe in a creator God. He has creative power, not only to create, but to recreate. And this is where we come to the gospel as well, the gospel and creation. We read in Psalm 14, verse 1, what? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Whereas Psalm 111 verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commands. His praise endures forever. You know, to change or deny the account of creation is really an outworking of a rebellion that really began all the way back in Eden. It's taking the creator out of the picture. 
But as we read earlier in Romans 1 verse 20, Paul wrote what? They are without excuse. For the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world. That whole passage there in Romans chapter 1. You know, I'd recommend that you you go over that in your own time. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 through to 20. Um, These things are clearly seen, Paul says. And so as people who profess to follow God, we should never be timid in standing up for God and for his precepts. It says that is the beginning of wisdom. A few verses earlier there from verse 20, we go skip back to verse 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It means for everyone, right? Have you ever been ashamed? The gospel is a message for the whole world, for the Jew and for the Gentile. Why would Paul say that he's not ashamed? You know, he lived in a, a world there where he mixed with various different people from, you know the lowest part into the society right up to the very highest. They even met the Caesars and the kings and so forth. So in a world where, you know, the sophisticated person thought that it was foolishness to believe that God became man, born of a virgin, and then he was crucified on a cross, and then later on he resurrected, and today he is in in heaven, restored back to his original position, and he said that he will come back. This made perfect sense to Paul. Paul was not only not ashamed to preach this message, but he was uh, willing to be ridiculed for it, to be persecuted for it, And yes, he was even willing to die for it. It was a faith that declares here in verse 17, the just shall live by faith. This same faith in verse 20 declares that since the creation of the world, God's power and his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So my friends today, we have a loud message that we ought to be declaring to the world. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, also talks about the gospel message, the everlasting gospel, just like Paul here writes about. And it also refers to the Creator. Worship Him that made the heavens and the earth. In a world that scoffs at the idea of there being an almighty Creator God, our role is to declare such a message with a loud voice. I'm not saying... Take your, <laughs> take your megaphone and, and preach out on the, the street of Bondi Junction Mall here or anything like that. You know, there are smarter ways than that. But really, pointing people back to a creator God and the things that that stands for is actually an ongoing part of the Reformation that began right back in Martin Luther's day. In a world that scoffs at the idea of certain standards or morality, etc., as as we see in the Bible, our role is to declare such a message in the context of the everlasting gospel and the grace and the power 
of God, who is a creator. See, the power of Jesus has power. The, the, the grace, the grace is actually power. That's what grace, grace is. The grace of God is the power of God in your life. Power to change, power to recreate. And that's why Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 5 verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Those who accept the gospel message and this free gift offer of the creator not only look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, according to Revelation chapter 21, but they also have that recreative power available, my friends, today. Today. And this is something that world, the world that we live in needs so much as the world drifts further and further away from God. Today, the world would like to devise ways to save itself. Isn't that true? But God knew that this would not be possible. We are surrounded by moral degradation, environmental degradation, and we don't need to look too far to see that the prophecies that talk about health degradation, pestilences and so forth, they have encompassed humanity the world over today. There's only one way to change the world and there's only one way to change the course of our lives. It is a divine solution. It is through the power and grace of our creator God, through a restored life that is possible in Jesus. You know, one day in the new Eden, in the restored Eden, Revelation 21 verse 4 says that the creator shall wipe away all tears. There shall be no more death, no more pain, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 66, right in that very last chapter of Isaiah uh, that we're going through at the moment in our daily readings. Isaiah 66 and the second to last verse says there, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, meaning from month to month, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So the Sabbath was something that was created in the very beginning before sin. And the Sabbath is something that will continue on through to eternity. This same Sabbath gift that helps us to remember the creator today will be the same Sabbath gift that will be available to us in Eden. And will remind us not only of his creatorship power, but also of his redeeming power. Recently, I visited my parents in Adelaide as the state borders opened up just a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, like many South Australians, my dad, he likes to grow all sorts of things. And one time I counted about 17 different fruit trees in his front and backyard. <laughs> you know, from a pomegranate to an apricot and plum and apple and this and that. He's got everything, peaches. Um, and, um, but this time when I went there, and this was in the front yard, right near the front fence for everyone to see, um, I saw something new. Unfortunately, I didn't take a picture of it. 
but Dad had weighed down the branches of this tree. It wasn't a big tree. He, but he'd weighed down the branches of a certain plum tree with empty bottles. I don't know, all sorts of bottles. That, I don't know, he'd picked up from all over the place. Uh, you know, he had lemonade bottles. He even had some beer bottles there just hanging off this tree. I'm like, Dad, what is this? You know, there's about 20 or 30 of these different bottles hanging off the tree and, and pulling its branches down. Okay? Uh, it looked quite bizarre. It kind of looked like an outdoor version of a poor man's Christmas tree, you know, decorated with all these different colours. <laughs> um, and I said, what in the world is going on here, Dad? And he said, look closer. Look at all the new shoots, he said. And so as I came closer, I saw that he was right. There were all these new branches that were about 10 centimetres high. That were, as, as, these, as these branches were being, you know, instead of being up like that, the branches were down like that because of the bottles. And then along the branch, there was all these new shoots coming up, going directly upwards. How clever, I thought. Now there would be more fruits on this tree. And additionally, they would be very easy to pick. <laughs> you know, as these things grow up, you know, apparently that's how the farmers grow them these days. They don't use bottles, though. They, I think they actually they, they, they tie the branches down with, with a string or something like that and just causes the, the tree to be much more, much more productive and easy to pick from. You know, we know that all healthy plants turn towards the light, don't they? And as they do so, the energy from the sun causes changes in the plant, causes it to grow, etc. The Sabbath calls us to put aside our weekly activities that consume our time, our energies, and turn completely towards the Lord and Saviour, the light of the world. And as we behold him and his word and the works in the nature all around us, and his salvific work for us. A change occurs in us. Isn't that true? A change occurs. So my friends, are you feeling weighed down at all? Are you feeling burdened? Look up. Look up. Look to the creator. He is not only your Lord, but he's also your saviour. Look up. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read there between verses 7 and 11, we read, Today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It goes on to say, Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the example of disobedience. You may feel that the Sabbath is a trivial thing. But God says, remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, God could have asked us to do some impossible thing. He could have said, I want you to climb Mount Everest. He could have said, I want you to, you know, swim the Atlantic Ocean. Or maybe let's go easier than that. Just swim the English Channel. Or maybe even easier than that, you know, maybe swim from the, the Opera House across to, to Taronga Park Zoo, right? You know, it's getting shorter and shorter, right? But, you know, God could have asked us to do some difficult test. 
multiple choice even, but, you know, difficult. <laughs> he could have asked us to work hard. But no. God has asked us to rest. He's asked us to rest. Everyone can do that. Surely. Everyone can rest. And you know, in the end time, the test of time is something that comes to each one of us. You don't have to go look for it. God doesn't ask you to go and work. He just asks you to rest. Isn't that wonderful? We serve a brilliant God. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be an Einstein. You don't have to be ripped with muscles. You don't have to be good looking. You just need to rest. That's it. Rest. It may not make complete sense to you, but he asks you to trust him. And as you trust the creator of the universe, he begins a process of recreation right in your heart today. Is that good news? My friends, may God bless each one of you. And those of you watching on that screen over there, as you delight in the Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbath that he made right back in creation. Amen. Let us uh, close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we look around us, we can see your amazing works around us. We pray, Lord, that as we honour your word, as we honour your Sabbath, as we look to you as the author and finisher of our faith and the author and finisher of all good things, we pray, Lord, that you will bless us. May we delight in the things that delight you. And Lord, we pray for your special blessing on our lives and on our families. We pray for your protection and we pray, Lord, that you'll bless also our sphere of influence as we share this hope that we have in an amazing God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org.
From Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1, that was Remember the Sabbath. Coming up next, it's Sabbath Now, from Carly Fletcher's album, Follow the Lamb.
tip lady who loves to make your life more simple. Got a question for you. Do you have kids who are picky eaters that pull awful faces sometimes when you put the food in front of them? Well, you know, we might think that that's really, really rude, but they don't. They quite automatically look and go, yuck, yuck, I don't want to eat that stuff. And the battle starts. So if your home becomes a battle zone, What are some ways that you can deal with this so that they don't grow up as picky eaters and so that mealtime is a happy time? So my first tip is this. When you come to the table, this is what you need to do. Turn the TV off. Turn your devices off. Why? Aha, 
because you've got to make mealtimes a happy time. A time everyone looks forward to because they're having such a good time they forget about something that they don't like that's on their plate. Do you think that's even possible? Well, I know it is. Because it's worked. In our home. Now, institute the NWA rule that means no whining allowed. NWA. Well, actually, that's not just for mealtimes, that's for any time. Now, if mealtimes are to be happy times, put all those devices away, no listening or watching to other things, and spacing out and letting your kids eat all by themselves while you pretend you're there, but you're only there in body. No, that's not what to do. Turn that TV and those devices off. This is what we used to do many years ago when we lived in an ancient rainforest, and our three young girls loved being there. There was never a dull moment. No school to go to, but we educated them at home. We found at one stage that mealtimes were becoming not really a battle zone, but very dull and very boring. So we said, you can only come to the table and eat if you have something really interesting to share. Something you've learned today out of a book, or something you've observed out in nature, or something you've thought up. Well, when they'd come to the table... You'd be surprised what amazing conversations we had about all sorts of things. Now, if your kids are too little for that, here's something you can do. Tell them, when you come to the table, when mummy calls you, you have to tell me something funny or something that you love or something that you'd like to do one day. And if your child is too little even for that, then you may need to do what we did. When finally our son turned up, when all our girls were grown and gone, he was such a busy little man, he didn't want to take the time to eat. So, distraction was the key. I'd have a little pile of things hiding behind me, just small toys, and before boredom and uh, frustration would set in, I'd pop another one onto his tray and pull faces and tell stories with great sound effects because that helped too, because distraction is the key for the little fellows. The point is, we tried to make mealtime such fun that the food got eaten and we were all happy, and that way the job got done. All right, that's my first simple tip for getting your kids to stop being picky eaters or never to become picky eaters in the first place. Turn off your TV and your devices. Right, you got that one. Well, my second tip is this. Get your timer. Set it for 25 minutes. Now, when I was a kid, I would sometimes really hate something that was on my plate and I would sit there for what seemed like forever with one mouthful in my mouth refusing to swallow it. Mum would be exasperated saying, just swallow it. Big brother and sister would goad me on and my stubborn self would dig my heels in even more. Mealtimes were often miserable. But what if they'd done this? Don't make a big deal of it. Don't make a fuss. The more you make a fuss, the more they love you or the more the child hates you. So if you don't want that, just simply quietly take the meal away and say, that's it, good, all done, nothing till the next meal. Wow, if you make a big deal about it, I'll tell you what, there's going to be whining and gnashing of teeth and wailing and all sorts of horrible things. And they'll go on and on for years. So don't do it. What was our first tip? To stop kids from becoming picky eaters, turn
turn those gadgets off and have some fun conversation. We learned so many interesting things and it was great fun finding just what each kid thought was fascinating from what they had learned that day. Sometimes, you see, they learn things that I wouldn't even be a bit interested in. But they were fascinated, so we got to know our kids better too. So with the TV off, and mealtime's a happy time, you'll be having such a happy time that our kids will hardly notice the odd food that isn't their favourite. If they don't want to eat their meal, that's okay. 25 minutes later, away goes the food till next time, and you're not harping, swallow that mouthful. The food goes away, finished or not. So what's the second tip, remember? 25 minutes and the food goes away. No fuss. Whether it's eaten or not, it simply disappears. No threats, no warnings, no misery. Believe me, if they don't eat at all, it isn't going to hurt them. Next meal, I guarantee they'll really get stuck into it. It'll go down the hatch without a fuss. Those are my two simple tips for today if you've got kids in the family. Try them and your lives will definitely become more simple and happy. That's it from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. makes a difference. I'm Margot Marshall. What difference would it make if you ate enough fibre? It may save your life. Researchers analysed 17 studies and found that every 10 grams of fibre consumed cut the risk of death by 10%. So where will you find fibre? Exclusively in the foods the good Lord recommended to our first parents, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts and whole grains. But how would you know if you're getting enough fibre? Dr Dennis Burkett came up with a simple test. He said the stools should be soft, like soft serve ice cream, large, pale and floating water. So enjoy heaps of plant foods because fibre makes an observable difference. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.